0: whatever that you want to get rid of. uh, Do it, say, by noon next Friday, and then we can haul it to the dump and be rid of it, unless you have another way of getting rid of it. My chickens eat bread and whatever as well, so you can throw some of it there if you want. They won't send you a thank you note, but they will cluck and enjoy. That's the way they are. So anyway, as far as the, the... Arrangements, especially for those of you on the phone. Uh, we have the Passover service, of course, Saturday evening, and it's at 820 here. But whether you're in the eastern zone or in uh, western zone or wherever you might be, uh, you have to take it on your own because we can't broadcast it from here. Because your sundown, if you're back east, would have already occurred an hour earlier. And if you're on the West Coast, you still got an hour of sunlight to go before, or close to it, uh, before the Passover is done. So we don't have anybody to administer in each time zone, so you have to take it on your own. Uh, So uh, sundown in your area is the time that it should be done. And I think everybody has a tape of a previous Passover we've done here to follow, listen to, and take the bread and the wine as directed there. So that's this coming Saturday evening at sundown, wherever you may be. And then uh, I've set it up for the first holy day, which is Sunday the 29th, to be a one one o'clock service, followed by a potluck. And no, no leavened bread then, of course, because we observe the seven days as the Bible instructs seven and seven only, starting with the first day, which is a holy day, a memorial, and a festival. So one o'clock on Sunday, and then I've uh, proposed that we have an evening service each day during the week at six o'clock in the evening, uh, followed by the, the the last holy day will come on Saturday, on the regular Sabbath anyway, so we'll... We'll do our regular time, 1 o'clock, on Saturday the 5th with a potluck following. Now, I, I, I arbitrarily set 6 because some work can get off at 5 and could be here by 6. And I, you generally have one or two or three that maybe are working evenings and some day, and so you can't make it where everybody can come. So I'm trying to set it where most can. Uh, is, there, is there an objection or is there something we can adjust to make it possible? Brian, when do you? You don't get off until 10. Off till 10. We'll have it at 11 every night.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, right. <laughs> and you go to work, what about 11? At 1? Uh, but then Charnel's working too, and she cooks. Uh so you, you just can't you can't set it where everybody can be here. So I think we'll go with six in the evening. Uh and then on Wednesday evening we have a, a big sit down dinner uh planned. Uh we got some the meat already bought and everything is, is uh getting ready for that. So Wednesday evening after services. So if we start at six and we could eat about seven, uh If I cut it a little bit short that night, and then at 7.15, that gives us a half hour in there to get everything all. Everything will be basically prepared, but a a half hour in there to get everything set up and the meat sliced and everything and and ready to go. So uh, that's Wednesday evening, the 2nd, and uh, I think the ladies already know the schedule of of the food and everything on that. So that's, I think, pretty well the schedule. For next week now I'm betwixt in between and a little bit torn here I came up with two sermons that I wanted to give today uh, usually I have trouble coming up with one but uh, this week there were two and I was having trouble deciding which one to do so I finally decided I'll do them both so, uh, do you have an extra tape over there? No, I'll, I'll try to compact the two. Uh, there's two messages here that I really would like to, to get to, so I'll try to compact the two and get them within pretty much the normal time. Uh, so call this a split sermon then. We used to have those, 45 minutes each. All right, let's start out then, and I, I may not turn to all scriptures for sake of time, but uh, 1 Corinthians 11:28 is that context is talking about the Passover and uh, the attitude we're to come in. We're not it's not a it's not a party night. It's not a social night. It's a a night of great solemnity. And we've always instructed people it's not a night to just pass the time of day. Come in quietly uh, with a spirit of reverence to God. And dignity, more so than any time we have, in that sense, even more than atonement. Uh, Atonement and Passover are the two most solemn uh, evening or days of the year. But uh, Passover service itself, uh, we need to have every respect for our Redeemer and Savior that we possibly can and recognize that. But verse uh, 28 is what I wanted to... Talk about most, and that is that we examine ourselves. Let every man examine himself and then partake of the Passover. I went through, oh, I don't know, it's been three or four years ago, and I think I mentioned this recently, that the first day of the first month begins the uh, formal examination period. That we have a, a lead up time before Passover to look ourselves over, to see what faults, defects, sins, illnesses that we might have that we need to address. Now, we won't reach perfection, certainly before Passover, but if we have a clear perspective of the things we need to work on, that's the key, uh, is in the time before Passover, you make a diagnosis of where you have lacks and faults. The six days after the first day of Unleavened Bread are man's days to work on resolving what you diagnosed was wrong. (laughs) In other words, to be putting sin out. So, prior to Passover, we find the sin. And that's why we clean our homes before Passover and get the leavening out. You find what is there, and symbolically you put it out. Now, Christ's sacrifice on the Passover itself is there to forgive us of our sins, but even having been forgiven, none of us are yet perfect. So he gives us six days following the main thing he does on the first day, to continue to put sin out of our lives. Because even as we're baptized, we still we come up as a new person in that sense, a new spiritual life. And it's, God uses the analogy of a conception, like a baby that has been conceived, and then it has to grow in its womb. If it comes too early, uh, it's a miscarriage. If it goes full term and develops the maturity to do so, then it is born as a live human being. And with us, baptism only represents a beginning. We receive God's Spirit, which is the Spirit of conception. And then we must grow and overcome, through whatever period of time we have after that, until we die or Christ returns, and hopefully be spiritually mature enough to be born into his kingdom as a spirit being. So he uses the human body, anatomy, family, husband, wife as a perfect analogy of the spiritual life that we are to have. So uh, Christ is the one who forgives the sins. And we ask at baptism... Well, it says repent and be baptized. In other words, change change your way of looking at things, your way of doing things, to God's way of doing things. And you can't get that accomplished entirely. So he expects you then, once you receive his Holy Spirit with a laying on of hands after baptism, to begin to grow toward spiritual maturity to be born into his kingdom. So we have that analogy with baptism, but we also have the formal ceremony every year that represents Christ dying for our sins so that they can be forgiven. Because it doesn't matter, it wouldn't matter if you really could overcome enough to become sinless, you still would not be able to have eternal life, even though perfect. Why? Because all of us have sinned in the past and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. So even if you come to a point, having sinned, that you no longer sin, which is highly doubtful, but it, it's an analogy. If you reach that point, you would still have to die for the past sins unless they're removed. So we have the Passover service as symbolic of that being utterly removed. So we need to examine ourselves whether we be in the faith, and that's what my first sermon here is about. Uh, I thought of, the, of medical science, and uh, they go through a diagnosis period when you're sick to try to find out what is wrong with you. And I read many years ago that about one-third of their diagnoses is incorrect. They'll... They'll read the symptoms, they'll come up with the wrong solution, and then it goes on, and then maybe later on they'll re-examine, and sooner or later they might find the right diagnosis, but they might never. And you may die anyway. And even if they get it right and can't fix it, you'll die anyway. So I've learned that people often will try to self-diagnose, especially if we don't have much trust in the medical profession, which I think most of us here don't. We trust God who says he's our healer, and that's where we first look is to God and to his rules and to his way of eating and his way of doing. But when people self-diagnose, they more frequently than the doctors misdiagnose their own situation. And then when they self-medicate on top of that, Uh, they're even more fraught with error. Now let's draw that analogy to ourselves and our spiritual condition. We all know that the church has been spiritually sick, uh, as expressed to us very clearly in Revelation 3 and other places throughout the prophecies. Sick from head to foot, it says in Isaiah 1-3, somewhere right in there. So, what about self-diagnosis? How's that work for you? Now, you've got to remember that the human heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Not, not a little bad, but desperately wicked. That's us. And it is very, very difficult for us to self-diagnose ourselves spiritually Self-righteousness, for instance, is probably the hardest thing for any human being to see in himself. He would like to be righteous, and he likes to think of himself as righteous, and yet he knows he's not, so he puts on this front of righteousness, and in so doing may sweep a lot of things under the rug or underneath his consciousness so that he can try to appear righteous. And we try to do that in front of each other. We try to do it even in front of God. And sometimes when I pray, I say, Well, this is what I think, Father. This is how I feel. But then I will tell Him, But I don't know me as well as You do. And I may be lying to myself. I don't know what my true feelings, deep down in my heart, really may be on this issue. So please show me what I need to know. So, Self-diagnosis is dangerous, so if you're going to examine yourself properly, you need to go to God carefully in prayer and ask Him to help you see what it is that needs changed. I know that's scary, but we need to do it. We need to know what it is that needs worked on before we ever come and ask for God's forgiveness at Passover. It isn't so much a matter necessarily of what we've done that is the problem. It's a matter of what we are. You don't do what you do except that That's what's in your heart and mind, and that's why you do it. It's what you are that makes you do what you do. Or outside influences that work on your human nature, and it is not good. So, to examine ourselves, really, we need to examine ourselves, A, in prayer before God, and B, in the light of His Word. So, to keep this short, I'm going to reduce it down to... Three areas uh, that we might look at as a guide in helping us with God's Word diagnose what might be wrong. The first one's in Galatians 5. Here's a pretty good rundown of human nature right here when it talks about the works of the flesh. And you could go through these in your own personal study and meditation before uh, Passover and hold yourself up in the light of each of these and he goes down and I could give a whole sermon right here in these next three four verses uh, about human nature and ourselves we're pretty well acquainted by now I think with the the nuances of human nature and of Satan's way of working on us his devices but You could go down through there and uh, read about adultery, fornication, uncleanness, which is anything contrary to God's way of holiness and cleanness, uh, and look up variants and emulations, Old King James' word, which means sedition or disunion and division and uh, that kind of thing. How about wrath or strife? We have wrath and strife all around us. Uh, Sedition or uh, rebellion against government. Heresy. Any kind of doctrines you might have ideas about that might be different than what we're teaching here. Uh, Can they be resolved? Envy, murder, or character assassination. Drunkenness, revelings, any such like. So, you could... Pick out each one of those and give it some thought. You know, is this part of me? Does this one fit me? Uh, What about it? And then you can contrast the fruit of the Spirit in verse 22, 23. Uh, And how much do you embody love, joy, peace, long suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith? Peace, how? Well, Will you let others live in peace? Do we do a character assassination or murder with our gossip? Uh, patience and long-suffering, gentleness. Are you gentle? Or are you brusque and brash and mean uh, in your comments, in your humor, in whatever way? Goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Those are all things we need to have. So examine yourself and say, how much of this one do I still have and how much of this one do I still need? So there's you a good day or two of study right there just to think those each one of those through one at a time and where you stand up and measure to it. So then you're examining yourself, not just saying, well, I wonder what's wrong with me. Well, I don't see too much. Well, yeah, maybe that. No, get the Word of God out. Check it out. See where you stand. On each one of those, I guess you could give yourself a grade if you're up to it. Uh, all the works of the flesh. Do you score a 30, a 60, a 90, or a 100? Uh, how good are you with this one? How good are you with that one? How much room for improvement, in other words, is there in each one of those? Uh, which las- lasciviousness I just caught my eye again. That's lawlessness. How many of God's laws do you still have difficulty with and uh, and drag your feet a little bit so let's go from there to Exodus 20 speaking of lawlessness uh, here in Exodus 20 we have the laws of God the Ten Commandments this is a really good one to examine yourself by this is the gold standard of all instruction and the rest of the Bible's based on these ten Christ even boiled them down to two loving God and loving your neighbor because the first four have to do with one and the last six to the other. So uh, you can go through them. No other gods before him. That is, no idolatry, Uh, not any graven image, nothing that we bow down to other than God himself. Well, I think it's in Colossians, yeah. I think it's Colossians 2, maybe 16, if my memory serves. It doesn't always But it says that covetousness is idolatry. So the last of these Ten Commandments is covetousness. Coveting your neighbor's wife or their husband or their horse or their dog or their car or their house or their land. Here recently, Uh, covetousness is the same as idolatry. How? Why? Because if you want something that is not legal for you to have, then you're trying in your mind at least to have it, to want it, to desire it, and it's not legal for you. And therefore, you're putting yourself ahead of that tenth commandment, which is covetousness. And if you are breaking that commandment, you're putting yourself ahead of God. Because he says, don't covet, And you say, I will anyway. And therefore, you're putting yourself as God. Because you're allowing something that he says don't. And anything that you allow in your mind or in your hand that is contrary to God sets you up as your own idol. Because God doesn't know what he's talking about. I know what I want. God doesn't have a right to tell me what I want. This is what I want. So if you do that, you're putting yourself above God and above His commandments and instructions. We can't do that. So you can go down through here and look at each of these. What about the Sabbath day? To keep it holy. Not to keep it sort of. Not to give it uh, lip service, but holy. Holy. God, Set aside for God. Now in times past, uh, within the church years ago, and this is partly why Revelation 3 says what it does about lukewarmness and so on. People would watch TV. They'd listen to secular music on the radio or put it on in their house. Uh, They would go out to eat uh, rather than, you know, and various things that we might allow ourselves to do on God's holy Sabbath time. Now, he set that aside for us, A, to rest physically, and to rest and regroup spiritually. Because during the week, we're influenced by the world, we're influenced by our own natures, and when that sun goes down Saturday night, we're supposed to cease thinking about the things of the world and the things of ourselves, our jobs, our Uh, finances or whatever it is our hobbies people want to play video games on the Sabbath they've done that bored maybe well I got to do something I'm bored yeah but is it godly now if you are putting God ahead of everything with your heart, mind, body and soul and turning your heart completely to God as we've been instructed uh... Where's the prayer? Where's the Bible study? Where's the meditation? Where's the thinking on God and getting your mind and your emotions in line with Him preparing for the week that is ahead and maybe repenting of the week before and trying to get everything in perspective where it needs to be. So the Sabbath is a special time set aside for us to have communion with God in a way that... In many respects, we don't have time for the rest of the week. When you're working full time and have other things going on in your life, it's hard to devote the time that you really need to to God. And you need to put some time aside each day to spend with God, either reading His Word, praying to Him. But the Sabbath, He just set aside, this is sacrosanct, this is holy. You don't think your own thoughts or do your own thing. That's Isaiah 58. Don't think your own thoughts. Well, you got all kinds of thoughts, right? You're supposed to monitor them very carefully on the Sabbath. So, there's one to examine yourself on. How well do I truly keep God's Sabbath? Is it Him first and all about Him or am I still thinking my own stuff, whatever that stuff may be? A lot to consider. What's your grade on Sabbath-keeping? 40, 60, 80? I doubt any of us come up to 100, because various things will tend to come in your mind. And you might find yourself wandering off thinking about something that doesn't have anything to do with God and His way. Uh, And then you have to bring your mind back into alignment. And then it goes through all these things about uh, honoring your father and your mother, father in heaven, your mother of the church, your physical father and mother, your fathers and mothers uh, of the past, Hebrews 11. Uh, We have to do it on three levels. When God says that we are to turn our hearts to the children, the children to the fathers, Three levels. We often think of, well, that's making daddies dandle their kids on their knees more. No, Uh, honor and deep respect in the family is what reflects the spiritual father. And we have those who were more spiritual than we in the past, as again outlined in Hebrews 11, the father of the faithful is Abraham. And he tells us in Isaiah 51 to look to Abraham and Sarah, the pit from which we were digged and see the faith and the trust that they had in God. So turn our hearts to our forefathers spiritually and our mother Israel of the Old Testament and what she did right and what she did wrong and learn from it. And then, of course, uh, the highest level is our Father in heaven and that which he has set here, our mother, the church, as Galatians, Paul makes it clear there that the church is in the position of mother and that our relationship be right with them. Now, most people that were in the church don't have a very good relationship with mom right now, do they? Mom's scattered. Mom's dead. Mom's gone. Mom's working full-time and doesn't have time for us. Whatever. Uh, The relationship as described in the Bible isn't much in our nation anymore, and it isn't much in the church anymore. So all three of those levels need to be examined and how much do we look to our spiritual fathers in the scriptures and how much do we look to our father in heaven so there's just an awful lot here that we can talk about and go to Uh, so you can use that one I'll go to one more and that's Matthew 5, 6 and 7 Christ lays it all out here for us and here's you a really really good standard to use He set his disciples down, not the world, but his disciples came to him. And he taught them. They didn't have a big crowd at the so-called Sermon on the Mount that the Protestants will have you do. He he went up, he saw the multitude, says right here, and he left. He went up into a mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came, not the multitude. So the Sermon on the Mount was only to his chosen twelve, that's all. So this is a message for those who would be the apostles and then for the church to follow. It's not for the world because they don't understand and they have not been given the new covenant. So then he goes down. Blessed are the poor in spirit who recognize their lack for theirs is the kingdom of God. Uh, Unless you recognize your lacks and your faults, you're not going to overcome them. But if you have them and with humility... uh, The kingdom can be yours. Those that mourn, for they'll be comforted. Meek, they'll inherit the earth. Those that hunger and thirst after righteousness, not Revelation 3 and Laodiceanism, but really hunger and thirst for God's way and who therefore are motivated to read His Word. How motivated are we to read God's Word, to study it, to think about it? We're more easily motivated for entertainment in this life today of various kinds to humor ourselves, to entertain ourselves. That's what this whole world's all about. It's what our nation's about. They don't hunger and thirst after righteousness. What's your grade there? Well, if it's low, then that means that we need to do an awful lot of praying and fasting and coming to get to the point we hunger and thirst. I mean really hunger for it. You know, when I get up in the morning, uh, I may not be hungry right away. But at some point, 8, 9, 10 o'clock, whenever it is, 11 o'clock, I get really hungry. And I will even go so far as to go in and actually cook when I get that hungry. And when I'm thirsty, I'll go get a drink. Because my body really wants one. Now, do we really want righteousness in God's way? How thirsty and hungry are we really? Or do our physical human appetites transcend that, and we just can't seem to get around to doing the things we need to do spiritually because, frankly, they're not as important to us as the physical. So, you got to grade yourself on all that. How about mercy, verse 7? Do you tend to be a merciful, kind, forgiving person? Or do you hold grudges? How long do you hold grudges? If you want mercy from God, you got to give mercy. How pure is your heart? Is there a lot of clutter in there that still isn't as pure as it ought to be? Still have... Nasty, dirty, dark thoughts. Uh, Peacemaker. Peace does not come naturally. It has to be made. How good are you at actually making peace with others? And how patiently do you take persecution and reviling and people who speak evil against you, verse 11? Or do we get all uptight and upset and frustrated and and uh, revile them back. How patiently do we take that kind of thing? And you go on through 5, 6, and 7. I don't have time to do it. There's two or three sermons here. But he talks about how the thought of sin is also sin. Not just the overt act of sinning, but thinking about it is sin. Fornication, adultery, lying, cheating, uh, murder, whatever. Any of God's commandments, which you're going to review back in Exodus 20, Uh, are put here not on just a physical level as in the Old Testament but now on a spiritual level so that we're to bring every thought into captivity now you could go through the 10 back there and say well I'm not physically doing this, this, this or this so maybe I'm not too bad now when you go forward to Matthew 5, 6 and 7 and he says don't even think it oops, the grade may slip a few notches right there uh, so we got to examine ourselves, and those three areas are a good one. Uh, and they will cover various things. I started jotting down, uh, we need to check our moral health. Well, Galatians 5, Exodus 20, and Matthew 5 check that pretty well for us. What about our family life and how we're doing with our Father and spiritual family with our elders of the past and with our own family. Uh, What do we need to work on there? Uh, What about our zeal for God? Again, Revelation 3, is it half-hearted or do we hunger and thirst for God? I'll bet already we've found some things that we could say, well, maybe I should go back after this is over in the next few days. And think about that and examine myself before Passover and see where I fit and then come to Passover humbled, uh, with more meekness, with more contriteness, with more feeling and recognition of how deeply we need to be redeemed by his sacrifice, by the forgiveness of our sins by his resurrection in life which came three days later whereby we're given a new lease on life a new opportunity through his spirit to do things differently than we did before so Passover is a very critical area Uh, I want to go to just for a moment here to Malachi it talks quite a bit about the end time And starts out with a very strong uh, uh, correction for the ministry and all of us because aren't we all to be kings and priests in the kingdom of God? Uh, Revelation 5.10 says so. So, and we'll reign with him a thousand years as kings and priests. So, even though it's directed mostly at the ministry here, we're also all candidates for king and priest and we need to be living up to all this instruction on an individual level. It's easy to point a finger at the ministry only, and it is directed specifically at the ministry, so I'm not trying to get away from that. But there's an awful lot here uh, about the filthiness and the vomit on every table and how they all need to be cleaned up. And at the end of chapter 2, it says, "...you have wearied the eternal with your words." The words we speak to each other, the words we speak to Him, can weary Him. Our prayers can become a stench in His nostrils if we are hypocrites, or they can become a sweet savor and scent to Him if we are doing what we ought to be doing. So here it says, How have you wearied Him? (coughs) When you say, Everyone that does evil is good in the sight of the eternal. Are there people around in the church today who do evil, but still consider themselves true Christians? Think about that. Everybody that followed all of Ticott's doctrine and went back into the world are in that category. Many of us who give God lip service, worry Him with our words, and we tolerate... A certain level of evil in ourselves and that's why we examine ourselves before Passover to see how much evil we are tolerating and then to come to him and ask for his forgiveness and mercy and then we spend the next six days after Passover after the day of Passover working at getting that out of our life putting the leaven, the, the, the sin out of our life so we could apply this to whoever we want to, but we need to apply it to ourselves and how much, level, how much evil we tolerate in self. And he delights in them. How much, how much evil does God delight in? None. None. He doesn't like any evil. So what we tolerate in ourselves is intolerable to God but you know we can justify this we can justify that and well i uh, you know I, I really wasn't that way well whatever <coughs> or we say where is the god of judgment god isn't around he's not judging us he's not he's not paying attention right now he's overlooking my sin whatever but look at chapter 3 behold i will send my messenger and he shall prepare the way before me. (coughs) Now, before his first arrival here as a human being, he sent John the Baptist to prepare him. And he said another John the Baptist or another uh, Elijah would come to prepare the way before him again. That's in Matthew and Luke and so on. But here he's telling us, how much evil are you tolerating and then he says in the very next verse, and the eternal whom you seek, the one that you're seeking, the one you're trying to follow, <coughs> shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in, behold, he shall come, says the eternal of hosts. So he's going to show up. You can go to Zechariah 2, and he says, I'll come dwell with you. You can go to Isaiah 7 and 8 says the same thing in other places, where he says, I will come, Emmanuel, and dwell with you, be with you. He's going to show up in a way that he is I, He's here today. We ask that he be here in the opening prayer and be with us. So his presence is here. His spirit is here. I have no doubt of that. But what he's talking about is a more intimate, closer relationship that will change things. And he's going to suddenly come to his temple. In one day, I believe. At a specific time. He'll come. But who may abide the day of his coming? Now, I think it is very, very near. I believe this nation is going to be destroyed within the year. Not another year will go by. Not a whole year. The financial collapse is going to come before that. And once Christ makes himself manifest, he says it will be less time than for a child to say mommy and daddy. That's around 11 months from the time he comes and delivers us of him a virgin conceiving and bringing forth a child. That's an end-time prophecy in Isaiah. It's not. It, it was talking about his arrival with Mary and Joseph, but it's also talking about now. And he is going to suddenly show up. Who's ready? Well, I tell you, by looking at the numbers, as Daniel did, of the 70 years, the 430 years of this nation, and how long it's existed in the 65 years of Isaiah 7, I believe it's his spring. I might be wrong but I believe it and it scares me it truly frightens me now is the time for more prayer and more study and more fasting and more meditation than ever you have done because if it is this spring and he suddenly shows and it almost has to be Because if it can't go 65 years before Ephraim is destroyed, and that count started in 1954, I believe, so early 19 means that the economy has had to have collapsed, Uh, the nation will have become not a nation anymore before 65 years is completed. That's in 19 and we're over a third of the way a fourth of the way through 18 the 430 years have ended last late last summer and so has the 70 years waiting for the first month now he says that the gathering has to occur before the financial collapse in zephaniah 2 zephaniah 1 talks about the collapse so if it's going to collapse this fall Late fall, early winter, and the nation be gone before the winter's over, then that gathering has to be this summer. And Christ has to show up in order to oversee it all. He may suddenly come to his temple real soon now. Who can stand? This isn't talking about his second coming in glory, the first resurrection. This is still talking about when he shows up to his temple not for the whole world to see him, but at his temple. It says that who will stand when he appears, for he's like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap, and he'll sit as a refiner and purify of, si- of silver and purify the sons of Levi. He's talking about the church here. And they'll offer an offering in righteousness. And then it says our offering will be pleasant, verse 4, to the eternal, as in the days of old and as in former years. We've become a stench in his nostrils and we turned his stomach so he vomited us out. And he wants us to be refined and purified. Well, we may only have till Passover to get this done. Let a man examine himself. Are you ready to stand before Christ if he shows up? Whether visibly or just Via thunder or lightning or a high wind or whatever he chooses. I have no idea, really. I'm just thinking of things that have occurred in the past. You ready to stand before him and say, Hello, good to see you. I know I'm okay. I'm not there. I'm not there. I think I would have to fall on my face and say, Have mercy on me, a sinner, O oh Lord. <laughs> Who could stand? Well, he's going to purify us. He's going to teach us. going to give us more information. He says, I will come near to you to judgment and be a swift witness against the sorcerer, the adulterer, false swears, those that oppress the hireling and his wages, the widow, the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right, and fear not me, says the Eternal. All right. If you've gone through Galatians 5 and Exodus 20 in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and you've examined yourself carefully and seen if you're doing any of these things he's talking about in verse 5, uh, maybe you'll be a little more prepared to stand before him. He says, For I am the Eternal, I change not, therefore you sons of Jacob are not consumed. He says there will be few men left. How many we got here? but not consumed, not destroyed. And Ezekiel even asked that question when Penani or whatever his name was died. Are you going to let us all die? He said, no, not quite. (laughs) Almost, but not quite. And there's some of us still sitting here that are almost there, but not quite. There's a couple more of us here that almost died in the last two months. Came real close. But I think God intervened in a couple of cases and they're still here with us. If they last another week, they might last the little turnaround. We'll see. Me included. All of us. <laughs> you know. We never know. So we're not consumed. Even from the days of your fathers, you are gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you. Isn't that what we read in Jeremiah 29 and 31 and... Various other scriptures. Turn to me with all your heart. It's repeated right here. If you'll return to me, I will return to you. Who is a candidate for returning to him right now? Only those that have been called out. That's the only ones. The rest of the world does not have the opportunity. They don't have the understanding. They wouldn't have a clue what to do. We have to return to him with all our heart. But you said, wherein shall we return? Well, aren't we okay? We're keeping the Sabbath. We're keeping the Holy Days. You know, we're, we're, we're doing what we're supposed to do. So he gives one example here. But you say, wherein shall we return? Then he asks the question, will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed. We would say, no, I wouldn't rob God. Why would I rob God? How could I rob God? But you say, wherein have we robbed you? And then he answers, in tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation, this whole people. And he uses tithe as a result, or as as an example of that. How many in this nation tithe to God, give 10% of what they owe, of, of what they earn? Now, God has said, I'm going to have a tenth percent of my church, a remnant, return to do my work. It says 10% right there in in the last verse of Isaiah 6 and many other places, remnant and Haggai. So he is going to have his 10% of the church, and he's going to use it. And what he's saying here is, if I give you everything and you're not willing to give me 10% back, then why would I want you to be part of my 10%? If you won't give me 10%, why should I make you part of my 10% of people? I wouldn't, he says. If you're going to rob me, I'm not going to bless you. Tithing is a very, very important thing to God because it signifies that we are willing to give back one-tenth, of the 90 of the 100% that he gave us and keep 90 for ourselves. Of course there's second and third, but that's another subject. I'm just talking about the 10 here. And he says tithes and offerings. <clears throat> Tithing is a salvational issue. If we are unwilling to tithe, we will not be in the kingdom of God. He's going to save back a remnant or 10% of his church for himself. And then when all of this holocaust at the end of the age occurs, he's going to save 10% of Israel, physical Israel, to begin his kingdom with in the millennium. So he uses our physical tithe as a type of both his church at the end and the millennial reign of himself and his father over the earth. It is a vital doctrine to God. So we're not ready for baptism. We're not ready for the kingdom of God unless we do that. And here in this end-time prophecy, he could have used various examples. You're not keeping my Sabbath right. But he picked the tithe. And it has to do with our blessing as well. Let's read on. See, if you're cursed with a curse, then he says, "...bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in my house." And prove me now herewith, says the Eternal of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, says the Eternal of hosts. And all peoples will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightsome land." Not a cursed land, but delightsome, says the Eternal. So he hinges this doctrine on us being blessed or cursed. That's pretty powerful. Now let's understand the context. I had somebody tell me 12, 15 years ago, well, I tried tithing, and the windows of heaven didn't open up on me, so I'm not ever going to tithe again. He'd read this. Oh, didn't work for me. I'm going to do that. Understand the context. How did this chapter open? The Eternal will come suddenly to his temple. This is a prophetic book. It's talking about the end time. It's talking about his people at the end time. He goes on down to talk about when he makes up the crowns for his people. That they will be in his kingdom. And then he talks about him returning and how he'll send Elijah and Moses before the day of the Lord. So this is a specific prophecy of a specific time when we are looking for the curse that we have been under to turn into a blessing from God. The whole context is the end time right here and now. So even though this principle has always been here, it's about right now. So then, let's not examine ourselves further. You can do that through this next week ahead. And that's all you have left, is to thoroughly examine yourself so that you come not hypocritically, but prayerfully, humbly, and meekly before God and partake of the body and the blood of Christ. And unless you are properly baptized and have had the laying on of hands, you should not partake of that bread and wine. Now, there's some who are prospective members they can attend but they should not partake of that they could partake of the foot washing but not the bread and the wine because they have not been formally put into the church by God unless they've gone through the steps that he tells us to go through but let's let's change to the other sermon now whoa wait a minute man does he talk a lot but let's go there anyway um This leads into it right here because we are at that point where he is about to come to his temple. All these other things are about to happen in the world and there isn't much time for that to happen uh, before the crash and the collapse and uh, captivity of the nation. And it may be only this summer that's left for that gathering before the crash occurs. I believe that. So, consider what he said here and what it's going to take to get blessing. Now that takes us back to, to uh, Joel 2 where we've been going quite a bit recently because I think it's very, very important to where we are right now. Now in Joel 1 uh, he goes through and shows that all these various insects have come through and have devoured everything in the land and left it desolate. Just like the plagues came on uh, ancient Egypt or Mitzrayim And devastated everything. So we as a church have also had everything eaten up that we ever had. The crop of television, the crop of radio, the crop of uh, booklets and magazines and so on have been swallowed up and eaten and are gone. The growth, new growth, has stopped. You don't see new people but rarely. He'll call a few at the eleventh hour, yes, but you don't see growth in the church anywhere of any of the branches on any substantial, or to any substantial degree. It just is not there. Stuff's quit growing on a spiritual level. <clears throat> now, that, and that's what mostly this is talking about, because we haven't been going hungry physically, have we? Now we've had plenty. So he's talking about all the spiritual blessings that have been eaten up in our relationship with God. And we are in a spiritual famine, as Amos 8 says. So, everything has dried up and gone away. And the ministers are howling and screaming because nobody's coming and and so on and so forth. So he says, Sanctify a fast and shows that everything has been cut off before us. And here we are, scattered, dejected, not any growth and drying up on the vine. Withering. Chapter 2, he says, Blow the trumpet, sound an alarm, because everything has come apart, and the day of the Lord is near. So, this is a prophecy for right just before the day of the Lord in Christ's return. It's talking about now. Even as Jeremiah 30, I think the last verse says, you'll understand these things in the latter days. That's when you'll understand them. I might not be quoting that chapter right. It's between 25 and 31. I think it's in 30. Anyway, we're right here at the end. And we have been cursed. We've been living this way now for about 32 years since Herbert Armstrong died. That was the first curse that came. In that sense, our leader died. And without a leader, we've been rudderless. Uh... Everybody's been going their own direction. We'll talk about this more. So, everything behind has been left a wilderness, behind all these spiritual locusts that came, and pain and so on. Now, down to verse 12, uh, God's sending an army. He's going to destroy. Uh, He's already destroyed the church, so that's fulfilled. Now He's going to destroy the nation, and that is less than a year ahead of us, I believe, at this point. So he says in verse 12, Therefore also now, says the eternal, Turn you even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart, and not your garments. Now that's exactly what it says in uh, Jeremiah 29. I don't, don't take the time to go there. We've read it recently. Where he says, Turn to me with all your heart, and seek me, and I will be found of you. And I will answer you, and your prayers then will be answered. Now, wouldn't that be nice? So, he's saying the exact same thing here in a little bit different words to us right now, just before the day of the Lord. This is to be our attitude. Well, now, if you're going to examine yourself this next week before taking the Passover... That heart of yours has got to be examined too and how much more it needs to be turned to God. And that's why I gave you the scriptures I did that you can go through and examine your heart and mind and see what you lack and do everything you can this next week before Passover to turn to Him with all your heart. You don't have time to watch a blasted television this week. Forget it. You don't have time for a television. You don't have time for a video game. You don't have time for nothing. But seeking God with all your heart. I've been trying to say this over and over for years, and more recently in recent weeks, more adamantly. But can we get it? Can we really get it? that this is close and we had better do something about it because the Lord will come suddenly to His temple. And who will be able to stand? What other clutter is in your life that can be put off for a little bit while you seek God with your whole heart? Let's get it, brethren. What does he say down here? Blow the trumpet. How do you you know if he might return and relent and leave a blessing instead of a curse that we've been under? Who knows? Maybe he will. In fact, he says he will if we'll do our part. But then he says, call a fast. We did that a couple weeks ago. But he tells us, the ministers, to weep and howl and get somehow from the outer porch to the inner altar. Get there. Through fasting and prayer and study and putting Him first. I don't care about a lawsuit right now. It's the least thing on my mind. Getting close to God is all that counts. The lawsuits, all that stuff can wait a week or two. Let's get some answers from God Almighty. That's where we need answers from. He's serious here. This is as serious as it gets. Why should the heathen rule over us? Why should they say themselves, where's their God? They're not the Christians. They're the rebels. We're not. They are. I've heard it said about us. We're the rebels. Especially me. Now, am I rebelling against God or trying to tell you to find Him? This is as serious as it gets. I'm tired of cursing, aren't you? I'm tired of it. I've been living it now for at least 32 years. Now, what does he say? If you'll turn to me, I will be jealous for my land and pity my people. Instead of anger, he will have pity. Now, boy, would I like to see that come. Poor, poor, pitiful me down here and what I've been going through for all these decades. I want some pity from God. The the Eternal will answer and say to His people, Behold, I'll send you corn and wine and oil, and you shall be satisfied. How long has it been since you were truly satisfied spiritually? Huh? Can you put a date on it? I think maybe sometime back in the 60s I might have felt somewhat that way. But not much since especially since Herbert Armstrong died in the church, all went to hell. Pardon my French, but pretty much it. Sardis died, went to the grave, dead. That's hell. Verse 21, Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Eternal will do great things. If we will but rend our hearts and turn to Him and put everything else aside... That's every distraction. When he says, turn to me with your whole heart, that means your entire attention, your entire focus. It means you cut out all distractions of any kind. Got a girlfriend? Got a boyfriend? Got somebody you're engaged to you want to marry? He says up here, put away, put off the wedding. Put it off. Don't even think about it. Now, for a bride and groom that have got a date set for this next Wednesday, he's telling them, forget it. Now, that's going pretty deep into your life, right? This is not to be treated lightly. He will do great things. Now, he's going to come down here in a few verses and tell you when he's going to do those great things. Now, what are great things? What does he mean by great things? Let's read on. I'll talk about it. Be not afraid, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness do spring, for the tree bears her fruit, the fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. So he says everything is going to turn around, and that which has been upside down backward and famine of the word and famine of spiritual contentment famine of answers from God is going to be turned around and everything is going to be productive. And that is going to include some great things, some miracles from God in order to cause it to be that way. Things have to change dramatically to say God did great things. So he says, Be glad then, you children of Zion. How long has it been since you were spiritually really glad. And you could just sing to God with gladness and joy. Hasn't been that way much in the church, has it? Or in your life? I mean, we can be thankful and little things God does for us. But want to sing and dance. That's what it says back in Jeremiah. Where is it? Chapter somewhere between 29 and 30. Oh, it's in 31's. Because he says the Ephraim, the uh, watchman will stand on Ephraim and shout it out and warn, and then it's going to turn around and those in Zion down toward the end of chapter 31 are going to sing and dance in joy and gladness. How you feel today? You ready for that? I've been kicking you in the stomach all day about examining yourself. I'm not ready to sing and dance. I'm ready to repent and turn to God and say, Oh man. I want to be there. Help. All right, he says, Rejoice in the eternal your God. So, he's going to turn it around to where we can rejoice. For he has given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come... He's given us a little blessings here and there, but he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain in the first month. It'll be like a deluge of blessings. He's given us intervention. He's given us a little help, a little bit of the first rain. We haven't been completely without God, but not too many of our prayers have been answered the way we wanted, honestly, have they? I don't think so. We've had a little help. Now he's going to open the floodgates, he says, in the first month. "...and the floor shall be full of wheat, and the fat shall overflow with wine and oil." Now notice 25, I will restore to you the years that the locust has eaten the canker worm and the caterpillar and the palmer worm, from chapter 1, my great army which I sent among you. So he destroyed the church and had it all eaten up where there was nothing much left. 32 years of it now. And he says, "I'm in the first month, he is going to restore all that has gone wrong in the past 32 years. That's pretty remarkable, isn't it? If you stop and think about it. I'll restore all those years that you've been chewed on. And you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. How long since we've been spiritually in the church satisfied? and praise the name of your God that has dealt notice the next word wondrously that's a a big word wondrously almost defies my imagination he says that he will do signs and wonders in Isaiah 8 and in Zechariah 3 on the day that he forgives our sins in one day He will do wonders. Now that's, you know, focus. What's that? And you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and I am the Lord your God. Well, we've seen several scriptures where he says, I'll be Emmanuel with you, God with you. Here he says it again in the first month. And none else, and my people shall never ever be ashamed again. Then it goes to Pentecost in verse 28, as, as Peter points out. But the first month, everything that we've read so far is the first month. Well, let's, let's analyze that very quickly here for a few minutes. <clears throat> I jotted some things down. All right, the palmer worm, the locust, and everything have taken the joy and the gladness from us. What has made us sad? What has made us sad spiritually? Well, division and scattering has made us sad, hasn't it? That has been a trauma. Some of your relatives went with this group, and some went with that group, and some gave up. So the division and the scattering has been traumatic. Well, I can read you a whole bunch of scriptures that say, when this turnaround comes... He is going to begin to gather and to unify. Haggai is all about that, and so are other places. He will bring his remnant together to do his work. So there's one problem solved. Once he opens the doors here, he's going to gather us. I think there's something in this context even that talks about that. My eye doesn't pick it up, but it's in all the others. When the turnaround comes, uh, well, Isaiah 52 It says when he turns it around, verse 8 and 9, that he will will see eye to eye, the leadership will, and all of us, and we will sing and dance. Then he goes about down verse 10, 11, 12, and says that he will start gathering us. Then it shows the Passover, and then he says, Lengthen the cords of your tents, because I'm going to bring a whole bunch of people together, together, in a gather. So it's when the turnaround comes. That's what this is talking about in Joel. When he comes to dwell with us, and when we have turned to him with our whole heart, it's going to turn from cursing to blessing. Go back to Malachi. All right, here it is. So that's one thing that made us sad was the division. It's going to be reversed. To start bringing us together again. Won't that be a happy day? A confusion, (coughs) doctrinally. Well, he's going to have two leaders that will give us correct doctrine, so all the heresies that have been going on for these last 32 years, from this one to that one to the other one, are going to be cleaned up and straightened out. He says, Elijah to come will restore all things. So the leadership that is coming will do the restoration. And if you don't listen to them and agree with them, then you're out. Because God is going to restore it through them. Not anybody else, but them. So that one will be solved. No more going here and there doctrinally. That means the calendar will be straightened out, and Passover will be straightened out, and some of the things we've learned that need to be taught to those who will be coming in the gathering. So that will be fixed. Uh, no leader. No He says there in Micah 4, when he tells us to come out and and, uh, be in pain to give birth, that our leader has died, and we're leaderless. But he tells that virgin there to be in pain and bring forth, and we will have the first dominion. And he tells us in Isaiah and other places, he's going to send a man that was from the north, he will come from the east, and he will bring leadership. So the two are going to be put together together, whoever they are, and they will give the leadership that we have been lacking in the direction and the guidance. They will be teaching and pouring out the oil of God's Spirit there in Zechariah 4 to all seven of the churches, those that have been called together at least. So, the leadership issue solved. Boy, that will be a joy, won't it? Instead of everybody standing up here and there and saying, I'm the only Philadelphian around, you've got to come to me. <coughs> Hogwash. God already tells us where the leadership's coming from. It'll be the watchman standing on Mount Zion, Jeremiah 31, preaching from Ephraim to the church. That's where it'll come from. Nowhere else. That's a great thing. That's a wondrous thing. That all of this directionless will suddenly have direction. What about our health? Have we been sad about... Our health, the many maladies and diseases and illnesses and diabetes and heart troubles and cancers and things that have debilitated us in the church, and people who have died, our loved ones who have died, and we prayed for them and it didn't do any good, and they were sick and they died anyway. That's made me awfully sad. I lost my wife now about 10 months ago. And I've been truly sad ever since. And it it breaks me up to even think about it. People think I murdered her. I loved her more than I loved my own life. I would have given my life for her, and I still would. But people are nasty and mean and suspicious, and they have evil imaginations. But haven't we been sick? How not we lost mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers? That's made us sad. And we would anoint. And not much usually would happen in the last 30 years. Occasionally we get some intervention, but we don't get the kind of immediate, absolute healings that I saw occasionally back in the 60s and even into the 70s that virtually disappeared. I know God can do them. I witnessed it with my own eyes the first anointing I did my little niece was about that tall I've told you about it she hadn't been potty in about a month as I recall and I think God gave me some confidence and did it partly for me as well as for her because my aunt asked me to anoint her and I'd only been ordained less than a week at that point and I anointed her and we sat there and kept visiting and looked out the window a little bit and She had had the poop of all poops and was out playing in the yard. Just that quick, less than 15 minutes later. I've seen it. I've experienced it in my own family. I know it can be done. But we haven't been getting it, have we? Now, if God reverses that and suddenly begins to answer our prayers because we turn to Him... And we give a prayer of faith and ask him to heal, and he does it, won't that be wondrous? I've been frustrated for a lot of years when I would anoint people and nothing basically would happen. Now, in our experience here in the last, since 2000, some have been anointed and sometimes they've been helped, sometimes they've been healed. I've seen some, three or four pretty absolutely dramatic ones since we've been here but not very many and not everybody, okay? And sometimes just enough to keep us alive, and sometimes not enough even for that. So that's been a very sad thing. It's hurt us terribly. What if we were to see the sick suddenly, completely healed? Maybe a few resurrected even. That could happen. It's happened in the past. That would be wondrous, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that knock the church and the world on its ear? Oh my. Could happen. Wondrous things. Great things. He even compares it to Mitzrayim in Egypt and the Red Sea and the Jordan backing up. The things he's going to do here at the end. God is not limited. <clears throat> What about, well, unanswered prayer I've already kind of talked about. How many times have you prayed and prayed and prayed and didn't seem to be getting anywhere? I have. Wouldn't it be nice to have turned to God with our whole heart and we pray and He answers? He says that right there in Jeremiah. He will do it. Um. How about works of the flesh as compared to works of the Spirit? And he says our righteousness will be his righteousness there in the end of Isaiah 54. I could go on and on, but I think you're getting the picture. That when he says here, I will do wondrous things, and you will sing and you will dance before me, and you will cry out in joy and happiness. There in Zechariah, how uh, our fasts will become feasts of joy. Wouldn't it be nice if that was this year? we got some fast coming up in July and August, another one right after trumpets in September. I'd love it if we could feast instead. We'd be so happy and so joyous with the wondrous and great things that God has done. And he says there in Zechariah 10, as a parallel to Joel 2, that we are to ask for the former and latter rains in the time of the latter rain. That's in April, when the latter rains come. The former rains in this area are January, February. The latter rains are in April. We've been having a few physical ones here. And the first month, which is April. And that's when he says he'll pour out his blessings, is in the first month, the former and the latter rain. So if we're to pray, as Zechariah says, for all this to be turned around in the first month, now is the time. All of our sadness, all of our woes, all of our frustrations will be turned around in one month, one day. Is that this Passover? I think very, very likely it could be. And then he will pour out his spirit in a way that he never has before on Pentecost. Acts 2, Joel said that that was an exhibition or a fulfillment of Joel 2. 28 and on down. And it was, but it wasn't the final one. The final one, Joel himself says, is in the time of the day of the Lord. Peter was a long way from the day of the Lord when he said that that was referring to what happened on Acts, in Acts 2. So it's going to be even greater. The next weeks and few months, I believe, are going to be incredibly different than what we have experienced till now so let's examine ourselves let's focus entirely this next week on seeing what we need to change in our hearts and minds to get as close to God as we possibly can because the time when he comes suddenly to his temple may be sooner than you have thought now if I'm wrong I'm going to be really really wrong And then I'll have to reconsider and regroup and rethink. But Daniel saw by the numbers, and I think that God has shown us by the numbers, not only the 70 that Daniel was considering where Babylon would be destroyed and the temple would be built, but also the 430 where God has given us an opportunity and we have gone back into the captivity of Babylon and he is about to destroy this nation of Israel that is Babylon, and begin to bless his people to build the temple. Same thing that happened in Daniel, and he put an outside limit on it. From the time the Bilderbergers started a conspiracy in May 29 through 31 of 1954 to destroy this nation, and it'll be happened before 65 years has come. And that's the end of March, well, actually end of uh, May in uh, next year. But he says before a child could speak. So it doesn't go the full time. It comes short of that. And I think we saw the beginnings of it when we had that eclipse last summer, because that is the time in July when the Roanoke uh, colony started 400 years, 30 years ago. The 430 is up of Ezekiel 4. The 70 years of us building church houses and having families and children and grandchildren of Jeremiah is up. And the time for building church buildings and having families is over. The 70 years is done, just as Daniel said. And Daniel's an end time prophecy. And at the time of the end of that 70 years, the temple was to be built and Jerusalem to be built. We're there. Those three signs from Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, I cannot deny. I know by the numbers, just as Daniel did. And it scared me when I came to understand it just like it did Daniel. And he prayed with all his heart and fasted and meditated because he knew the time had come and he didn't feel ready and he didn't feel the people were ready. And that's exactly what Joel says. Pray for the people that they turn to me and that they not be ashamed and misused by the heathen anymore, but that they turn to me and I bless them as I have never, ever blessed before. End of second sermon.